And everyone's like, wait, why did we send the kids out for this one? I need to hear this. <laughs> so this is where I get myself in trouble. Um, when I was writing this sermon, uh, a part of what I did is I did a little reading in and about Marx. I know, but chase me out now. Uh, there's lots of hoopla about Marx. There always has been. There probably always will be. Um, but you know what? If you boil down everything that he had to say, what all that he was what he was offering to people um, was the way that he saw history, specifically and and entirely, as a division of classes. Right. This is what Marx said, and that in this division he would say there is inherently animosity. And that all human process, our progress, came through repetitive clashes between the authority class and the oppressed. And that's what history was. Two classes that are opposed, clashing together and resulting in a new normal. Which was two classes that were opposed, clashing together and resulting in a new normal. Over and over and over again. Listen, I'm not a Marxist. I'm just not. But one thing I will say is that <clears throat> these philosophies that we label as liberal philosophies, be it Marxism, be it our own American revolutionary philosophy, a very liberal philosophy at the time, or whatever it is, um, they're very good at something. They're very, very good at identifying problems. Pretty bad at solving them but very good at identifying problems. And when it comes to social problems and our human failure to solve them, animosity between classes, between those groups that are divided by some form of authority and agency and then a lack of authority and agency, it's real. It's throughout our history and it's a problem that never goes away. I'm going to expose myself, my musical tastes. Um, one of the modern new wave ska bands, The Interrupters, yes, I still occasionally listen to ska, um, have a song called Babylon, and this is the, the uh, one of the verses says, God made man, and mad made, man made kings, and kings rule man, and they bring the suffering. And then the chorus, rebel against the kings of Babylon. This is an eternal tension. And the solution? Marx says it's essential revolution, constant rebellion. Not too far from Thomas Jefferson's own famous line that the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Then there's the authoritative alternative where we just keep people in line. We stem off rebellion. We write a stronger constitution or we distract and disenfranchise. These are the world's solutions. I don't think it should surprise us if we've spent any time in scripture and the church to find that Jesus offers us a third way. 
one that is indeed revolutionary, but one that subverts without violent upheaval, without a call to rebel, but sees the solution to the world's social problems in the establishment of a new kingdom, where animosity becomes love. Last week, we looked at part of this call. And actually, if we wanted, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and flip back for a second. And we have to remember that all of this comes under um, Paul's conversation even two weeks ago about what walking uh, well looks like and what discernment looks like. And he calls us not to be foolish, to fill ourselves with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to the God, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he talks about three categories, three relationships. Last week we talked about the first, husbands and wives. And now we talk about the second pair, but this idea that he gives us here is that we are made for mutual submission. This is what our new kingdom looks like. This revolutionary idea that as we grow in our lives in Christ, we will find ourselves laying down our own selves for one another more and more. Husbands submitting to, wives submitting to husbands and husbands submitting to wives. But he goes on. It includes these other categories. Fathers and children, masters and servants. Because he understands that there is tension between those with power and those who are powerless. But he understands that problem is a problem that rests in those old masters, the world and the devil and the flesh. And in Christ, these wicked powers lose their hold and a new society is formed, not by competing over authority, but by laying down our authority for our brothers and our sisters. If you like it's, it's a social flattening. One in which there is no partiality with Christ, as Paul tells us. And regardless of how you or I have envisioned our societal ills being solved, we need to take time and look at what Paul tells us these Christian relationships looks like. Because, I, I and agree, I agree with the interrupters. Not that we rebel. Because what we're called to is significantly different from rebellion. But our kings are the kings of Babylon. Uh, we're going to finish up Ephesians next week. And then for Lent, we're going to dive into the book of Habakkuk. We're going to talk about Babylon a lot. 
But whether you find yourself as more of a traditionalist or more of a revolutionary, the truth is there's no real relief for the animosity of this world in Babylon. The relief is in the revolutionary new kingdom of Jesus Christ. And what it looks like then for us in this kingdom to address these ills, this tension, is not rebellion, it's not submission to authoritarianism, it's a new mindset between both sides of this division. It's a subversive way of living in the existing social structures that turns the world on its head from the inside out. See, what Paul is actually doing here in this whole section is really quite brilliant. We miss it in our context. But in the Hellenistic world, these kind of instructions to husbands and fathers and masters were very, very common. They were called household codes. There are these how-to guides for the heads of households, for how they were to live well and you know, be good citizens and help our world function through how they manage their household. And usually, these household codes speak precisely to the three roles of the head of the household, to the husband, to the father, to the master. And while Paul, and that's why Paul here, I think, addresses fathers and not parents. Mothers, you're not off the hook. But he's writing something that will very clearly to his readers be, oh, this is another household code. So this is the Christian one, right? What is it supposed to look like? So in many ways, Paul's doing exactly what a whole number of other philosophers had done, but he does it in a way that is very radical. First, household, house, it's really hard to say, household codes need a tongue twister. Um, these codes only ever addressed the heads of the household. Paul does something different. He doesn't just address husbands, he addresses wives. He doesn't just address fathers, he addresses children. He doesn't just address masters, he addresses servants. We don't see it from where we sit, but within the context of, of these other codes, this was unprecedented, and it gave an agency to those who usually had no agency. But not only that, but he addresses them first. And that's not because obedience is more important than good authority. Actually, addressing them first elevates them to a position above those who are normally addressed in these codes. Like right here, just in the way he writes this, Paul is leveling the playing field of society, giving honor to those who usually were left out of these conversations entirely. Second, in addressing children and servants, Paul doesn't simply tell them to obey. He actually sets up a system of obedience that's very different. Normally, obedience is based on the importance of established authority. 
and the fear and self-preservation and personal reward for the person who is obeying. But here, Paul sets up obedience based on responsibility that they have to a wider community in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, he tells husbands and fathers and masters to submit themselves to their wives and children and servants. Actually, if you look at the way each of these pairings plays out, it feels like it's increasingly strong language. Usually these codes were all about how the head of the household kept order. They were very regularly authoritarian. But here the heads of households are called to elevate those they have authority over and to lower themselves. So the overarching message here is husbands and wives, you are equal and you are called to love and submit to one another, even as husbands exercise authority. Parents and children, you are equal. You are called to love and submit to one another even as parents exercise their authority. And masters and workers, you are equal and you are called to love and submit to one another even as masters exercise their authority. And I would say authority in quotation marks to some extent because it doesn't look like the authority of our world. Remember, authority looks like sacrifice in the model of Jesus. And I don't want to spend a ton of time looking at each relationship, um, partially because I, I think that just like marriage last week, the details of what it means to live in a mutually submissive way between parents and children and masters and workers, it's somewhat a moving target. It needs that discernment that we're talking about. And it's defined within those relationships through knowledge and wisdom and the joy of the Spirit. And partially because it's pretty simple. Stop seeing one another as unequal. Stop seeing one another as enemies. And love each other. And as we do this, the details of what this looks like tends to work themselves out. But I do want to look really quickly at each one of these because God, Paul does give a little practical context and I think it's good for us to hear. Parents and children. Paul says fathers, but it's not exclusive. Paul addresses children first, elevating them. To obey their parents. He quotes the law. This is actually an expansion of the law. The Old Testament law says, honor your father and mother. Here he says, obey. But he quotes this from the Old Testament, honor your father and mother. So any idea that Paul will be calling for radical rebellion against authority and the old forms of authority is just gone here. Obey. The fact is, any children who are left in the room, you're called to honor your father and mother. If you're young and still under your parents' authority, a part of this is obedience. Doing what your parents tell you to do, even when you don't like it, even when you don't understand it, and even when you don't value it. 
And those grown children in the room, you're also called to honor your parents. Now, this doesn't look like obedience because it can't. That, I think, flies against the relationship set up between husbands and wives and the leaving and cleaving that children are to do. But what it does look like is valuing your parents, loving them, caring for them, speaking to them with respect, and in many, many cases, it means forgiving them. But the real interesting thing is not that you're called to do this, but why you're called to do this. It's not because Paul sees authority as something that must be protected. And it's not that if you don't, you will be crushed. And it's not that if you do, you might gain favor with them. These are the world's motivations. But in Jesus Christ, we submit for a radically different reason. Honor your father and mother, Paul says. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and you may have long life in the land. And while that's a fun little threat to like throw at our kids, honor your parents, otherwise, you know, no long life for you. <laughs> it needs a little unpacking. <laughs> Because on the surface, it sounds like he's saying, it's the law, and it's how you're going to have a good life, so you better do it. But that misses the context. See, it's not just the law, it's God's covenant law. It reaches back to the Old Testament when God is setting up his picture of what society is to look like for his people. In Paul, he knows what he's doing. But he kind of gets it wrong. It's not the first commandment with a promise, because all the commandments had a promise. Grammatically, it's true. It's the first one where it breaks and gives you the promise. That promise, long life in the land, that is the blessing of the law that God brings to the people. This is the covenant under which these commandments all fall. So that blessing of the land wasn't just for the children. That you isn't just a singular you. That is all of you. Long life in the land. It's not an individual blessing, but it's a corporate one. Not a blessing that makes me better, regardless of where you are, but a blessing that makes us better. A blessing that is both for the child and for the parents. Children, obey your parents, because in doing so, you serve the people of God. Obedience is not an ex expression of respect for authority, but it is what you owe your community. And interestingly, like, that means even if your parents aren't good parents. This is an act of love for God, for your community, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, and for your parents who in Christ are your brothers and sisters. And in that same understanding, parents aren't let off the hook. Do not provoke your children to wrath, Paul says. And the Roman household codes could care less if a child was provoked to wrath. 
How dare a child be angry at their parent in the first place, the Romans would say. But in Jesus Christ, we see a radical and subversive truth that parents have a responsibility to their children. That that mutual submission between brothers and sisters in the Lord includes how the parents submit to their children. So what does this mean? I know every child who knows their Bible is paying attention now so they can talk us into a corner when we provoke them. This doesn't mean, though, that we're to give in to our children in all situations so as not to anger them. It's not a call to letting our kids do what they want, not at all. Otherwise, what would be the point of telling children to obey? One pastor says that he sees two ways to raise an angry kid, a wrathful kid. First is to be too authoritarian, making them angry with you. And the other is to be too submissive, making them angry with the world that will not treat them the same way that you have treated them. So what does it command? This calls parents to execute authority and discipline with love and selflessness, to guard them against, one commentator says, reactionary flare-ups over harsh words, insults, sarcasm, nagging, demeaning comments, inappropriate teasing, unquestionable demands, or anything else that could be perceived as provocative, and that stings a bit because that sounds like my mode of operation. Parents, we are as guilty of these things as our children are of not honoring us. And in the Roman codes, understanding, the understanding was that the, children's were the children were the property of parents. To treat them how they wanted, however they needed to, to keep order. But in Christ, you are called to discipline and raise up your children for their sake and for the sake of this community that we and our children are a part of. Because our children are also our brothers and sisters in Christ. And while our role of authority, I think this role of authority, looks very different from any of either of these other two relationships, it's still requires us to love and respect and submit to our children as much as any other relationship in the new body that we are in Christ. Similarly, similarly Paul addresses masters and servants. Actually, he says slaves. We're not going to get into that right now. Someday I'll probably preach Philemon, but come back to it always, and we'll get way into it. But here's what you need to know about Roman slavery. First, very, very different than our picture of slavery in the United States. It wasn't usually a lifelong role. It was not usually based on race, and it was not as socially divisive. Second, to those of you who go, well, why didn't Christians just immediately abolish slavery? I actually think there's evidence that Christians did immediately begin to abolish slavery. But not in loud and violent moments, but in a radically subversive way to do it, of doing it. And in that subversive and loving revolution, slaves were freed, but often remained a part of the households that they once served in. And the way that was possible was exactly because of the relational change that Paul sees here. But for our purposes, <laughs> I think we can read this as masters and workers. 
It's not exactly who Paul was addressing. A modern work structure takes it kind of out of your normal household code. But what Paul has to say here, I think, still applies very much to any of those worker and master relationships out there. And here, even more than parents and children or husbands and wives, or at least, I think, with more explicit language, Paul tells them to submit to one another. And and maybe that's good, because even if we don't have slaves, (laughs) this is a huge place of tension in our society, is it not? And we're seeing a meme a few months ago, and had the old slogan, I make a dime for every dollar you make. And then under it was like, I did the calculations and that's not quite right. <laughs> like, I'm not here to talk about money in our economic system. That's not what this is about. Though I will say, we often baptize one economic system or another as the righteous one. And we need to see that they're all worldly systems. No Babylon that we ever live in will be just. But the animosity that exists within that system between workers and masters, it's there. It's one that is very much a result of the oppression of the world and of the devil and of the flesh and has no place in the kingdom of Christ. But we don't solve it in the way that our world tells us that we'll solve it, either by educating workers about how much their masters actually deserve or by taking back the power from the masters. We solve it by redefining our relationships in Jesus Christ. And in in this, the worker is told to obey and respect their employers. But just as with children, Paul doesn't leave it there. We don't obey our masters because authority must be respected or because if we don't, we'll starve or because if we do, we might gain favor and move up the ladder. Paul calls this with eye service as people pleasers. We do it because we're called to submit to our brothers and sisters, even our masters. We're called to love those who employ us as if they were part of the same body, to render service to them as we would to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, work for the good of your employer. Work for the good of your employer. And see your work done as work done for the Lord. Because in this new economy of this new kingdom, you are working for the Lord. In fact, whatever you do is part of the creative and providential work that God is doing in this world. It is through you that God feeds his people. It is through you that God clothes them. It is through you that he provides shelter And it's through you that he provides joy and rest. Your work is important. There are no menial tasks. They all serve the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they all should be 
embraced and respected? Can we do our work with joy and dedication because we see our work as essential to the work of God in our world? And because we love those who we work for and are willing to work for their good, not because who they are, your boss might be a jerk, but because of who they are in Christ, your brother or sister. This feels as good a place as any to address the, well, what about that's lingering in the room? We're talking about our brothers and sisters. What if our employer isn't? (laughs) Or for that means our parents or our spouse. What if they're not our brother and sister in Christ? What if they're not a believer? What if they're even a pretty wicked person? Two things. If your employer or parent is asking you to do something that is wrong, that is sinful, then of course disobedience is required. But be careful. We use this a lot to do things that don't really fall in that category. We play seven degrees of sinful activity to draw lines that we want to draw and reject things that we want to reject. Most things that you are asked to do in your life, in your work, are not inherently sinful things. Hear that. Also, if we're going to disobey, we have to do so while still honoring and respecting our masters. And that's tricky. Second, if your employer doesn't know Jesus, it doesn't release you from obligations. First, because they are still image bearers of God. We're still called to love them. And second, because, as we'll look at a lot in Habakkuk, the work of God is often done through the unjust agents in this world. And we can still serve God while we work for those who don't know that they're serving God. And we can still serve God while we work for those who are not our brothers and sisters in Christ yet. And that yet is important. Because loving others as if they were part of the body of Christ is very often how our neighbors see Jesus Christ in the first place. Work well for your employers. Love them and submit to them as unto the Lord. This is how you witness to them most. And it is very usual throughout the history of the church for masters to come to faith through the faithfulness of their servants. But those of you who are masters, Here that Paul calls you to submit to your workers. Actually, I think Paul is as explicit here as anywhere else. He doesn't say a whole lot. He says, stop threatening. And then he says, do the same. Do the same. Workers are called to serve their masters as they serve Christ. And masters, you are called to serve your workers as you serve Christ. Regardless of how we line up on our economic and social questions, I guarantee you that no system we have ever imagined sees workers and masters in mutual love and submission in this way. 
If we did, if we truly lived this way, man, what would that mean for things like wage inequality, worker burnout, labor disputes? We'd be having very different conversations today. Workers, do you love and serve your, empo- your employers as you love and serve Christ? Masters, do you love and serve your workers as you love and serve Christ? Are we putting the needs of the other ahead of the needs of our own? This is what we're called to. Of course, likely we're not. We are, after all, still struggling under that stubborn authority of the world and the devil and the, th- and the flesh. We likely aren't even loving and submitting to Jesus the way that we should, let alone one another. Fortunately, this is not a sermon about our ability to love and submit and what we need to do. That's not what Paul is telling us. Taylor, you nailed it in your prayer. Jesus doesn't say, do this, and I'll love you. He says, I love you, and so do this. This is about being remade more and more into the new men and new women, new parents and new children, new servants and new masters, who make up the body of the one who has taken up each of these roles himself. This is the good news that we need to hear over and over. In God, we have a father who loves his children in this way. That we are disobedient. The logic would dictate that we deserve the harshest of punishments. He has chosen to love us, to raise us up, and to discipline us in his gentle grace rather than his wrath. And to do so, he sent his own son, his perfect son, Because in Jesus Christ, we see a son who is fully devoted to his father, obedient even to the cross, and who does so and submits himself so that we might have eternal life in that promised kingdom. He submitted himself, and in that he became the perfect servant, doing the work his master in heaven set him to, and doing it willingly, eagerly and passionately. He did not rebel against God, even as that work took him to the cross. He served the redemptive plan of his master, and he served you and me in the process. Because he loves us, he became a servant for us. But in Christ, we also have a perfect master and the perfect king. A king who, contrary to my friends, the interrupters, was not made by man and does not bring the suffering, but one made by God to end all suffering. And he leads for the sake of those he leads, and he leads by laying himself down and by serving. He leads by putting himself last, by lifting up his workers, his servants, so that they might become all that they were made to be. In Jesus Christ, the powerful and the powerless, the father and the son, the servant and the master become one. Perfectly flattened, they all find their fullest representation in the same person, in the same body, 
And we, as a part of that body, ought to reflect that. That unity and that love. As we take on these separate roles of Christ in our own lives, we're to do so by submitting and loving to one another, as Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, what you have done for us is amazing. You have operated so contrary to the way we, in, in our mindset, see power and authority. And you have called us to do the same. Father, I pray that we would each, from now uh, to the end of our days, we would see not division, but we would see brothers and sisters in Christ and fellow image bearers husbands and wives, that children and parents, that masters and workers would love one another with the love that they see you have loved them with. Pray this for the sake of your kingdom and your glory in the name of your Son. Amen.